we will transition to God's word from the prophet Malachi. Uh, you can turn to page 801 in your red Bible in the pews. And as you do, let me introduce both the series and, and the sermon. We don't always spend a lot of time in Malachi as I sort of scan different church websites. You don't see a ton of, a ton of sermons on this book. In fact, uh, my guess is that you've heard less sermons from Malachi than you've heard from books that are the same length, like James, Jonah, and Colossians. Is that, how many of you is that true for? A number of you. Nothing is really known about Malachi's life. The only thing we know is found here in this book, uh, and, and we know his name, Malachi, or Malachi, uh, which just simply means my messenger. This was a man who was destined from birth to bring God's message to God's people. And it says in verse 1 that this is an oracle, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Oracle can mean a burden. It's, a, it's a, something heavy. And as you'll see as we go through this book, if you listened well to this message, you would feel, you feel the weight of what Malachi is bringing to them. So this is not a mystical vision. The, the prophets around Malachi have given all kinds of visions, uh, but, but this is simply the word of God to God's people through God's messenger. And the whole book is God's response to a very compelling question that probably most of us in this room have or will ask at some point, some version of this question. It goes like this. God, if you're so loving, why is my life such a mess? <laughs> God, if you are so loving, why are our circumstances so disappointing? And it helps to know the context of this book uh, Malachi is speaking to the people of Israel after they have returned uh, from the exile in Babylon. They were taken away. Now they've come back. And one or two generations before, the people had returned and they had heard from these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they had asked this question, are we the generation who will finally see the kingdom of God come? Are we the generation who will see God's covenant blessings? And at least Zechariah turns that question around to them and he says, I don't know. Are you the generation who will finally be faithful to the covenant? Are you the people, the person? Well, Zechariah and Haggai both exhorted the, the Israelites to rebuild the temple, and in this zealous fervor they do, they rebuild the temple, and expected with big hopes that that temple would usher in a new golden era of God's king and God's kingdom and the Messiah, who they expected to come. But... It did not. And so we saw, we see the temple itself was so disappointing that the old men who remembered the first temple actually wept with disappointment. Israel at this time still remains the political backwater, irrelevant in the world affairs. They're being crushed by Persian taxes, and so their local economy is crushed. And Jerusalem is still mostly in ruins and uninhabited. And so now a generation after all these promises and hopes uh, God's people have become cynical and bitter. And their line of thinking seems to be something like this. God, if this is how you reward your servants, we'll just serve you with a little less enthusiasm. They're not denying God's existence, but they're questioning his goodness. And so we'll see that throughout the, the entire book. It's the religious version of quiet quitting, which was much discussed in, in recent news. One study Bible puts it this way, when we forget God's love and faithfulness to us, we can lose our motivation to obey him. 
and may blame God's perceived unfairness or unfaithfulness for our own sin. And we see this attitude throughout Malachi. We see in chapter one that the people of Israel are skeptical of God's love. That's what we'll see tonight. And so despite God's undeserved love, they have unworthy worship, and we see that unfold through chapters one and two. Not only that, but they, they turn away from God in certain ways, faithless in their marriages and stingy with their tithes and their offerings. And so we'll see all these things unfolding as we go through, through the book. Their attitude, again, seems to be, God, it's hard for us to believe that you love us when things are the way they are. Maybe you're not who you say you are. Maybe faithfulness isn't really worth the work. So this is the situation on the ground as Malachi begins to speak. And so let's pray, and then we'll read together the first five verses of this book. God, we read this as the oracle of the word of the Lord to your people by Malachi. And God, we pray uh, that you would speak to us tonight through this ancient text, that by the power of your spirit, uh, you would come and you would meet us and you would, you would speak to each of us, that you would speak to the jaded and the frustrated whose life circumstances haven't turned out as they expected and who are therefore tempted to justify sin, to slip into sin. God, would you, would you work, would you move? And God, would you come and help us to understand some challenging text tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Malachi is organized very clearly and easily. It's a kind of a breath of fresh air after the prophets that have come before with all these wild visions. Uh, there are just six disputes between God and his people. And these are not, you know, like fistfights. It's a legal format, a covenant argument. And they're organized basically in the same way. There's an assertion by God that is then questioned by the people and is then answered by God. And so that happens six times throughout this book. And then there's a little conclusion, uh, which we'll reach on Easter Sunday. So... Malachi was a preacher, so he has these three-point messages, you know, six three-point sermons, really tidy. That'll probably be our outline for the rest of the, you know, till, from here till Easter, so it makes it, things easy for me. Uh, God's assertion, Israel's question, God's response. Okay, what's God's assertion? We see it right there, verse two. God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Let's not go blowing past that to the more controversial stuff be, behind it. God says, I have loved you. Wait, I forgot to read it, didn't I? Did I forget to read this? Okay, sorry. Let me read it. We'll, in, we'll eventually read the whole thing, but let's read it now. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. There you go. So God's assertion in verse two is, I have loved you. And it's important to dwell on that for a moment because before God begins a rebuke, before there's something mysterious or, or difficult for them to understand, uh, God simply says, I have loved you. He affirms his love 
for them. And that's where, where this starts. And we don't want to blow past the fact of God's love. It's absolutely amazing. When I stood in this pulpit two weeks ago, we, we saw that from a different angle in 1 John 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It's incredible. And if we just blow right past it, we miss the wonder of it, we can make the same mistake that Israel is making here to, to take for granted his love and to start complaining, to not remember it, to not taste the goodness of it. The Hebrew could mean something like, I have loved you in the past and I still do. I have loved you, I still do. The God initiates, he maintains, and he guarantees his, his love for them. And in fact, one way to look at the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is to look at it as a document uh, documenting the love of God for a people, for his people of Israel. You can see that from the beginning, from creation, to Abram, to Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, to the Exodus, to their empire, to the exile, and back again. You just see God's faithful love to a people who are so often unfaithful to him. I said it wasn't mysterious, but actually maybe I misspoke. It's quite mysterious how God could continue to love this people. And yet he does, and he affirms that, I have loved you. But these Israelites in this, in this day, many of them are, have only a formal religious response to God that we'll see is lukewarm at best, and that completely misses the point. So, I have loved you. That's God's assertion. Now Israel's response, Israel's question, how have you loved us. You see right away from the tone that Israel has fallen into this kind of confrontational, cynical, bitter relationship with, with God. They're not denying God's existence, but they are absolutely questioning his goodness. And, and it, that becomes even more clear as we go throughout the book, but we see it in seed form here. And this question, how? In which way? How have you loved us? It shows up again and again throughout the book, seven times in the next three chapters. One, one commentator, so much so, one commentator called it the litany of Israel's defiance. It's just this rhythm of, of defiance. How have you loved us? In what? What have you done? What have you done for us lately? God, if you love me, if you love us, where are all those promises? Why is my life so disappointing? These people were making this classic mistake of confusing being loved by God with getting what you want from God. It's easy to get those confused, isn't it? It's sort of like the, the child whose father comes home from a long trip and she goes blowing past him at the doorway and pulls open his bag and says, what'd you bring me? You know, you're missing the relationship for the stuff. And in a way, Israel is doing that. And in a way, this danger is just as real for us today. Here's a diagnostic test for you for me. Are you diligent and obedient and prayerful and religiously observant while you're hoping to get something from God or while you need something to happen, something good to happen, but then it becomes clear that you aren't going to get the thing that you wanted, that it's not going to happen, and all of a sudden you find it so easy to slip into sin, to justify some disobedience. You don't run away and become an atheist, but, but you definitely give God less than what you were before. This is what Israel is doing, and it's so easy for us to fall into the same thing. They maintain their religiosity, but their hearts aren't in it, and perhaps that has happened to many of us here. We find that God isn't giving us what we want, and so we're not motivated to give him the obedience and the love that he wants. Quid pro quo. How have you loved us? 
So now we come to God's response, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here because the bulk of the passage is here in the last part of verse 2 and beyond. God responds, is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay. What kind of response is that? How does that answer their question in any, in any way? Well, it's actually quite helpful once, once we understand it. What God does is he puts these two twin brothers beside each other, who, who these people are very familiar with, their ancestors, Esau and Jacob, twin brothers. And by putting them beside each other, God is reminding the Israelites that based on their merits, God could just as easily have chosen to give his love to Esau as to Jacob. You'll remember the story. In fact, uh, Jacob made our hall of shame in the dysfunctional families of the Bible, as Scott Redd was preaching. Uh, Esau was older. He was stronger. He was more honest. He had more integrity than, than his lying brother Jacob, and yet God here puts his love on Jacob. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon's congregation. Once a woman asked him about this text and says, I can't understand why God says that he hates Esau. And Charles Spurgeon said, that's not what gives me trouble, ma'am. My problem is understanding how God could love Jacob. <laughs> Indeed. It's, we are in deep theological waters here, though, that we come to this doctrine of election. Maybe this is why Malachi isn't preached very often, because in verse 2, you get to this. You know. um, and yet, here it is. And it's, it's a bit tempting to go off on a long tangent here about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And Jules read this, long, this text from Romans 9, uh, where Paul does indeed talk about that. And there are great sermons on our website. Go listen to them if you want more on that. But for, for this, I want you to read, why is the doctrine of election in this text? Look again, why is it there? What is it doing? God says, I love you. They say, really? How? God says, I chose Jacob. This is for assurance of God's love. That's the purpose of election here. It's comfort, it's to comfort, and it's to reassure Israel about God's love. And in fact, when you read the Bible and you come across this doctrine again and again, what you will discover is that is one of the most common reasons that the doctrine of election shows up in Scripture, not as fodder for theological debates, it's here to comfort them about God's love. You, you might ask, how is election comforting? It's comforting because the only thing that can really give Israel and us assurance that God's love will never fail is that God loves them and will always love them because his love doesn't depend on their faithfulness, but on his. He chose them, and therefore, he never will unchoose them. I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, asks Israel? He says, Jacob, Esau, Yet Jacob I loved. Okay, so far so good. Now for the hard part. But Esau I hated. What is, what is that? What can we say? It's uncomfortable. One thing we can say is that in the ancient Near East, the, the language of love and hate is often used in diplomacy and international relations. And so one way of seeing this and reading this is to understand that it's saying God's love for Jacob represents this ongoing covenantal alliance. God's hatred for Esau, ongoing enmity. Some commentators have gone further, though, and tried to take the edge off of, off of it by showing that there's a, in the Hebrew language there's an idiom where hate is used in comparison to intense love to mean loved less. Uh, 
And there is that idiom that is used, but yet here it doesn't really, you kind of have to twist the text to see that here because verses three and four, as we go on and read them, you see this language of desolation and crushing of Edom. And it's hard to really see that as just loving a little bit less than, than Jacob. So it, it's, it's, it's hard for us to hear that God hates. I think one reason it's hard is because it's impossible for us to imagine a pure and holy hatred, isn't it? Any hatred you or I can, can envision has to do, is, is, a, is twisted by human bitterness, by malice, by hatred that we have experienced from others who are twisted by sin or that we have given to others who are twisted by sin. And yet God hates sin with a, with a purity because sin is an attack on the good world and the good things that he has, that he has made. The Bible doesn't hesitate to use this language, Psalm 11, 5, the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. And when the, when the Apostle Paul then goes on to quote Malachi in Romans 9, 13, part of what he's doing in his overall argument is showing that both Jacob and Esau deserve the same fate. Both of them were justly subject to the same, that same intensity of, of wrath from, from God. Both brothers drank the poison of sin they both drank this poison of disobedience to God and they did it knowingly. And with Jacob, you even think he, he did it eagerly at some, at some level. But in this absolute act of God's sovereignty, he chooses Jacob and passes over Esau. And we have to see that Esau and Edom got justice. Jacob and Israel got, got grace. God didn't do less than justice by Esau but Israel receives grace, what, what only Christ deserved. Still, some here would be, are just frustrated and you're thinking, why wouldn't a good God save everyone, right? That would be the natural question. Why would not a good God save everyone? But we could equally ask back, why would not a just God condemn everyone? He has every right. And so we hold these two and what you see in, throughout this entire Old Testament is this intense, tension, that God's goodness and mercy, on the one hand, are put in contrast with God's justice and wrath and hatred of sin, on the other hand, and they sit like this in, in tension for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years until one man walks onto the scene and resolves it all on a Roman cross. If anyone... We just can't spend two hours on this. But if anyone needs to discuss this more, if this is you know, an existential issue for you, we, I'm, Jules and I are here. I'll volunteer my time, not Jules's, but I can, we can talk uh, afterwards. Let's continue, though, in verses 3 and 4. He goes on, I have laid waste to his Esau. And now he's, talking, he's, he's zooming out and talking about Edom, the descendants of Esau, his hill country, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. <clears throat> it's hard to miss the contrast between the wicked country of Edom and the holy land that God has established in, in Israel. In Genesis 32 and 36 tell us kind of the history of Esau, I'm not going to recount all of that, but if you want, you can read it and see that he went to Seir, which is south of the Dead Sea, and he is, his descendants settled there 
and they became a thorn in, in the side of the people of Israel. After the Exodus, they wouldn't let the Israelites go through their land, even though they needed to, and yet God said, do not hate the Edomites for that. Later, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, uh, Obadiah records that the Edomites were cheering, cheering, that on, cheering on the destruction, and they joined in the looting. And, and so later then, Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy, or in, in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 49, 25, there are prophecies that say that Edom will be destroyed because of that and because of their ongoing persistent hatred to God himself. And Malachi is confirming that this destruction happened. The thing that took generations to build, centuries to build, civilization is torn down uh, in God's power uh, overnight. Jackals only move in if there's no one else around, and, and he talks about the jackals walking through. Edom is shattered and will not be rebuilt no matter how much they bluster and say, we will rebuild. The Lord says, no, if they do, I'll tear it down again. Verses three and four, also we see that Malchi is moving from discussing these two twin brothers to a larger discussion of their descendants. And this is, this is interesting. As nations, both, one commentator says, both nations sinned and both are punished, but Israel, by God's free mercy, is forgiven and restored, while Edom is left in the misery that it brought on itself by its own sin. And this gets to the idea that God's covenant dealings are not just always with individuals, but cor corporately with their descendants. We hear about this. You, you see, she had a cute baby as a prop, but you know, the, the baptisms, this is what we're doing in the baptisms. We say God doesn't just deal with, with, um, with us as individuals, but he deals with corporately with, with our descendants as well. And this is captured, the essence of covenant is captured in, in Genesis 17 and God's promise to Abraham. He says, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. But this is renewed throughout the covenant. It does not mean that automatically every descendant of Abraham will have eternal salvation. Romans 4 and other places make that clear. But it does mean that each of those descendants have this amazing privilege of being raised in a covenant community. And kids, if you were baptized, including all mine, uh, but others here as well. If you were baptized as, a, as an infant, this is, this is for you. This is what this is about, that, that you are, if you were baptized in that way, God, God loved you enough to give you parent or parents who, who love him. And they brought you to a church that loves him and a community who's pointing to the goodness of him and his mercy and his law and all of that for you. But that doesn't automatically mean that you are saved. You're part of this covenant community. But, but finally, you need to do what all of those things are pointing to, all of this is pointing to, and put your faith and your trust in, in Jesus Christ to receive, to lay hold of those things that are shown to you constantly in that community. Many of the Israelites in Malachi's day are failing to do that, and Malachi as a prophet is calling them back and saying, I'm calling you back to the covenant to lay hold of those promises that, that are for you. And part of the way he's warning them is by calling attention to how the, the disobedience of the covenant has impacted Edom. And the flip side is true for, for Esau's descendants. And there, there's a great discussion of this in, the, in a focus on the Bible commentary series. But in Exodus chapter 20, uh, God promises to punish the children of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It doesn't mean that all of Esau's children are eternally lost, but there's this legacy of spiritual deprivation of not being brought up in the training and instruction 
of the Lord. And Esau sold out his birthright and gave up all his covenant privileges for a meal. He was ready to do that. And that type of decision-making passed on, unfaithful decision-making passes on to his children and his descendants. And we see the fruit of that here in their wickedness and opposition to the Lord, which now has been met with God carrying out his promises. Okay, let's move on to verse five. Turns the corner here. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So now God lifts up their eyes again. What we see in verse five is that God's sovereignty and God's power is universal. That God is not just a regional deity. If you spent time upstairs in, the, in our Sunday school classes or downstairs, you, you've heard teaching on these things. The, the Syrian war gods, for example, they were gods of the plains. So the Syrian warriors were afraid to fight in the hills because they thought, oh, our gods are only the god of the, of the plains. The, Babel, the Canaanite gods, the god of thunder, or god of fertility, well, they had nothing to do with war. And so they, they have all these regional deities, but not, not the Lord, not Yahweh. He transcends national international boundaries. In fact, he transcends the universe itself. And he proves it by saving Israel from Egypt, which we're learning on Sunday mornings. And he proves it by saving Israel from one of their most persistent enemies, Edom, uh, here. And he's ultimately going to prove it by delivering them from the power of sin and of death. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The, the, the Tyndale Commentary series says, ironically, if Israel were more outward looking, she would have known God's love, seen by contrast how he's placed his love on them and how he's dealt with Edom. But there's also a hint here, and it grows in verse 11. There's a hint that God's work and God's grace and God's plan are not just local to Israel, but they are, they are, na- they are international ethnic, and not just local and ethnic, but cosmic and for all the nations. He's great beyond the border of Israel. Verse 11 is even clearer. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is fascinating, I think, that in the midst of one of the most, the strongest statements about God's sovereignty in all of scripture, we're also warned not, that that doesn't mean we just need to focus inside the walls of the church, that that doesn't mean we just turn in as God's people. He says, look out, God is great beyond your borders. Look up. It's almost like he's saying, you rebuild the temple, great, good job. But the point of the temple is not for you to lock yourselves in it. The point of the temple is for God's glory to go out to the nations. The point of the temple is that God's presence has come into the world and it's just, a, it's just an invasion point. It's going out from here to all the nations. The whole earth is his temple in the new heaven and new earth. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. That comes back to the idea then of God's sovereignty and that's where we'll close the... <clears throat> The Gospel Transformation Bible has a a nice note that reminds us that because God is sovereign in election, he can extend his mercy expansively to whomever he chooses, Jew or Gentile, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans 9 using this same example. God's faithful commitment to his people is possible because the destruction that all his chosen ones deserve for their sins has been poured out on Christ. Ethnicity, then, is not the issue. Faith in Christ is the banner under which people can unite from all nations. And that great mission continues today. God saves some from Israel, and ultimately we see he saves some even from Edom. 
And he's saving some today from Iceland and some from Egypt. And he has this grand global mission that he is inviting Israel back into, not to just say, focus on themselves and say, why, why isn't the kingdom here? We did our best. But to say, no, one is coming who will perfectly fulfill the covenant obligations that you think you did by building this temple. One is coming who will be the temple. And who will take the curse and give you what perfect covenant obedience deserves. One day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will go before the throne of God and call out, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, who received the desolation, the utter destruction that's spoken of here so that his people can, can receive God's love instead. And so God is good, and in his love, he gives his grace to his people for his glory, and he affirms his love before any rebuke. And we can rejoice in that tonight. You can rejoice again in that. Maybe some of you can rejoice in that for the first time and go out from here and share that joy with others. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Bethesda and the Beltway. Great is the Lord in all the earth. But let's pray. God, you are indeed great beyond the borders of Israel. God, we, we come to you with repentance as so many, so many of us may have, may have fallen into the same sin that, that Israel fell into, to become disillusioned, to think that you've rewarded us inadequately, and so we will serve you half-heartedly. God, forgive us, any of us who have engaged in that, forgive us for the sake of Jesus. Lord, I pray uh, for any here struggling with this, with this doctrine of election, that it would uh, move from being a point of, of confusion or a stumbling block, as we read about in, in Romans 9, and it would move to becoming uh, a point of assurance of, of your love. We thank you, God, for your love shown to us in Christ, and it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.